First, a quote. From that time on, the world was hers for the reading. She would never be lonely again, never miss the lack of intimate friends. Books became her friends, and there was one for every mood. There was poetry for quiet companionship. There was adventure when she tired of quiet hours. There would be love stories when she came into adolescence, and when she wanted to feel a closeness to someone, she could read a biography. On that day when she first knew she could read, she made a vow to read one book a day as long as she lived. This quote comes from Betty Smith's A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And if it didn't give you the chills and some major feels, I'm not sure what to tell you. As someone who spent nearly a decade living in New York City, more than half of those years in Brooklyn, and a person who claims to be book obsessed, I'm a little ashamed by what I'm about to admit, but here goes. I read the book for the first time for this episode. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is a semi-autobiographical novel published in 1943 and set in the early 1900s. It's a hefty volume that explores the joys and trials of a young girl named Francie Nolan and her family. The Nolans deal with financial insecurity, addiction, loss, family rifts, and plenty of sacrifice. But Francie and her younger brother Neely find a lot of things to enjoy anyway. It would be impossible for my guests and I to explore the whole novel in the scope of this episode, but we do our best. We talk about who A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is intended for, how much responsibility the kids in the book carry, fallible parents, the balance of pragmatism and romanticism, red flags, and anti-Semitism. We also fangirl over Francie and the way she romanticizes her life like the TikTok girlies of today. Francie's family's life is tough, so I will issue a trigger warning here for mention of addiction, the death of a parent, and infant loss. Meet our final guest of the year, Ore Agbaj-Williams. Ore has a desire to buy more books than she has time to read, but she buys more anyway, which is pretty much the most relatable thing I've heard in weeks. Ore is a writer from London, and her first book, The Three of Us, is out now where books are sold. The Three of Us was one of my favorite reads of 2023. Find Ore online at oreawilliams.com or at oreawilliams on Instagram. Thank you, Ore, for so quickly responding to the Instagram story I posted in which I raved about your book and for accepting my invitation to join me on the podcast shortly after that. I loved chatting with you. As we wind things down for the year, I have a few reminders for you. First of all, make sure you're following the podcast on social media. I am most active on Instagram at SSRPod, but also on Twitter at SSRPod, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. The podcast will be on hiatus starting in January while I'm on maternity leave, but I will be sharing updates on my life and reading on Instagram. Social media followers will also be the first to know when I have the details about a return date for the pod. You can also stay connected to me and the SSR family by becoming a Patreon supporter. In case you missed it, Patreon is a platform that allows independent creators like me to build a richer community with the fans of the things they create, like this podcast. Members have the chance to more tangibly support the show, which if you didn't know, I run as a one-woman show, with just a few dollars per month. In return, they get so many fun exclusive rewards and lots of bonus content. The rewards and bonus content will continue for patrons while I'm on maternity leave, so if you miss me during that time, please do consider Patreon. Plus, engagement from the Patreon community will ensure that it makes financial sense for me to start producing new episodes after Baby K's arrival in January. Learn more and become a patron at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and tapping support at the top of the page. Thank you to all of the patrons tuning in now. As you gear up for holiday travel, make sure you are ready with plenty of audiobooks. Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, is my audiobook marketplace and listening platform of choice since it supports indie booksellers. I'm telling you, those indies really appreciate the love. Visit Libro.fm and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is also currently offering great gifting options. Happy listening! I will see you right back here next week for our final episode of the year, which is our annual listener sode. In the meantime, let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. 
will obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Ore. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. It's a big day. Number one here on the show. I'm a huge fan of your book. I've told everybody about it. We're going to chat more about it later in the episode. But it's also our last book-focused episode of 2023. Next week, we'll have our listener sode. But it's also our last episode before I go out on maternity leave at the beginning of the year. So I don't I don't know how to feel. This is my last interview that I'm recording. But I just like I feel like I have to mark the moment and not pretend that this isn't happening because it's a big episode. And Ori, I'm so glad that you're here to be part of it with me. So thank you for joining me. No, thank you for having me. And thank you for what you said as well. I really appreciate it. And also, I think this is such an amazing concept for a podcast. So when you were telling me about it, I was like, this is so cool. And also it meant that I, again, obviously we're going to get into it, but got to read something that I'd, I think I'd heard of, but I'd never read before. So I love it. I'm really, and I'm excited for you for this next step after this as well. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I was kind of, when I asked you to be on, I was a little bit shy because I, I think I, I think I posted about your book on Instagram, like the minute I put it down, it was one of those situations (laughs) where I read it in, I think one sitting and I posted about it right away and you very quickly responded and I sort of was like on the fly like oh by the way do you ever do podcasts (laughs) I usually don't do that I usually like it's much more formal but I was so excited about your book that I was like I just have to ask so (laughs) I'm I'm thrilled that this all worked out the way that it did listeners if my voice sounds stuffy it's because I've been sick we are forging ahead because we have a lot of book to talk about today We are talking about A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. We are going out on the year with a bang. This book was written by Betty Smith, and I had never read it before. I've been hearing about it forever. I've had people requesting that we talk about it on the show forever, and I was thrilled when you chose it. So, Ori, can you tell me a little bit about why this was your pick? I think I'd heard of the title before, but I've never read it. And I also don't think I realized that it was classed as, like, a book for younger people, because there are certainly themes in there that are not for children. So I, I think I was just really intrigued by it. And I don't know why also, it was also the longest one. So I was like, okay, there's obviously got to be a lot of story in there. And the thing is, I love short books. So I'm not sure what came over me in that moment. But I just thought, this is interesting. There's a lot of story in here. I love the title. I also went to Brooklyn for the first time this year. So I was like, eh, I'll give it a go. Let's, let's see what this says. It felt meant to be. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know how I have not read this, which I, I say a lot on the podcast. I don't know how there are still books that are surprising me because they crept up on my radar, but I never read it. And I lived in Brooklyn for five years. I lived in New York for 10. So I feel like I can now officially call myself And I don't live in Brooklyn anymore, so I can't call myself a Brooklyner. But I wish that I'd read it when I was living in Brooklyn because then I really could have owned it. (laughs) This is a book that was published in 1943. And I'm so glad that you mentioned your sort of question about like whether or not this was a book classified for young people because I think that in itself is sort of an interesting place to begin. This is a huge book. (laughs) It's a huge book. And there's a lot that happens in it. And some of it is really adult with a capital A (laughs) although not necessarily much more adult than like what teenagers read in YA now but in 1943 like this is pretty racy stuff and when I started reading it and when it landed on my doorstep and I saw how big it was I was like oh wait people have asked me to do this on the show right like this is a book for kids this is a book that kids read I guess but at first it didn't seem that way And then I had to remind myself, like, YA was not a thing in 1943. Like, we didn't have these categories. And we've talked about this periodically on the show before, how it's only now that kids and teens and different age categories know what shelf to go to in a bookstore. When Betty Smith wrote this in the 30s and the 40s, like, it was just a book that was out there for people. And I wonder at what point it found its way to more kids because I would imagine that at least to start with, it was primarily adults who were reading it. What do you think? Yeah, I would have thought that too, especially because it seems like even though you see so much of it, obviously through Francie's eyes, 
we're seeing very much of what the adults are doing through Francie's eyes. Right. It does feel like a, a child is watching what's going on, but it doesn't feel like she's, apart from certain things, she is, it doesn't feel like she's necessarily shielded from a lot of the stuff that's going on. Like some of it she sees, but doesn't necessarily understand. Yeah, I think a lot of the themes about like poverty and things like that, I think kids, I suppose, at that time would be aware of, but then to see it realised and put on the page like that might be really almost like quite damning for them. So I was like, kids read this at that time? I'm so confused. Yeah, it is interesting because I I would imagine that like a lot of the issues that are handled in this book are things that kids deal with at every stage of history. I mean, unfortunately, these are realities for so many of us, regardless of our age. But I wonder like at what point it became more standard reading for kids. But to your point about like so much of this is told through Francie's eyes and at the same time we're getting an adult story – I would also add to that 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 Francie and her brother Neely, who's the other main character of this book, they are very old for their age. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but particularly as we were getting into the later sections of the book, there were moments when I had to remind myself, like, these kids are 13 and 14 or 14 and 15. They are really young to be doing the things that they're doing. They carried so much responsibility. They had so much weight on their shoulders. I I guess that's maybe what makes it a little bit confusing because at least, you know, by our standards in 2023, these kids have so much to deal with. But maybe to kids decades and decades ago, some of this didn't feel as adult. Like maybe in 2023, kids are just as much as it's hard to live in 2023. And of course, there's all kinds of unusual circumstances. Your average kid in 2023 is going to read this and be like, these are adults. These aren't kids. Whereas years ago, maybe young readers were like, oh, yeah, like I can relate to this a little bit more. Yeah. What you said about kids now versus kids then is so interesting because I think kids now, the first thing I think of when I think of kids now and particularly like Gen Z, I think of like people being on TikTok and just like going out with their friends and hanging out and not not thinking necessarily maybe at 14, 15, thinking of getting like, I don't know, a paper round, which, which nearly has. But they don't think about getting the train to go to a typing job or getting the train to go to a job where they read the newspaper for hours and hours every day. They just don't think about those things. They don't think about, if I don't do this, we're not going to have any food to... Well, some well some kids do, actually, I have to say. Some kids are in really, really sad and quite dire situations where they do think about those things. But a lot of kids don't. And so, yeah, I think kids now, if they read it, they would look at it and be like, oh, my goodness. They would probably think it was child endangerment. They would probably think that the kids should be taken away from their parents if their parents can't provide. They would be like, Johnny should be an AA. They, sh- they would have all these, like, you know, conclusions as to what should happen. But because those things just didn't exist at the time then there just aren't the facilities to take care of families in the way then that there were that there are now. And so it would be it would definitely feel very foreign to them reading it. The vocabulary that kids have around this stuff today is totally different. Yeah. And I also think that some kids today would read this and be like, this isn't how it was. Like this isn't real. This is <laughs> it's almost dystopian. Like even if you think about the school question, like there's so much in this book about education and the value of education and and Francie has to sacrifice going to school and there are so many kids in 2023 and even you know I was such a nerd and I loved school but there were days when I was a kid that I didn't want to go to school and I'm sure that happens even more now like why would you want to go to school when there's so many cool things that you could be doing from the comfort of your own home yeah. <laughs> I mean, all that I could do when I was a kid was like watch cable but I think like to realize that going to school was something that somebody would have to give up in a really heartbreaking way like it just it really puts things into an interesting perspective yeah 100 percent. i think katie the mother her particular fixation on education almost made me really sad because i remember they were saying that i think sissy is the is the one who can't read or write yeah and that that was just to her was meant so much in that look my sister can't even read about my kids need to be able to go further than us she was so insistent that her kids go further And I think even the mother was like, I want you to do better. That was kind of something passed down from mother to daughter in that have your little tin can that you put money into. And that was her thing to Katie. And then Katie's thing to the kids is get your education, make sure you can can read and write and you can have all these sort of accolades. And the funny thing about that at the end is I I almost felt like it nearly didn't matter because she married McShane. Mm -hmm. And they got the money and the status and everything that Katie had kind of wanted for her kids. And I know that she... She probably still obviously thought, you know, education is important, but it, it almost felt like you toiled and toiled and you made them do this. And then actually their life is 
kind of going to be easy. I mean, obviously they can now pay to go to college or they could pay to go to college and everything like that. But I say now because those characters have been living in my head for the last week. I know. So it's just like, they feel very present and in the moment to me. No, I agree. I've been reading the book for about 10 days, like in small chunks. And so I feel very invested in their world still. So this is a very long book and there are a lot of ways in for us. But because you were just chatting about Katie, who is Francie and Neely's mom and the adults in the book, and because we are adults and because I was finding myself like kind of in this weird, I don't know, moment of reckoning when I realized that I'm really close to the ages of these people who have all of these children. And <laughs> I was like, oh, I am I'm so much more of an adult than I am a Francie at this point. I'm thinking maybe we can just spend a little time chatting about the adults and the family history because this book is structured in a sort of interesting way. There's five parts. The first part is it kind of just like introduces us to the characters. Then in the second part, we flash back to like the family history. So we find out how Francie's parents met, but not only that, like their ancestry and how their parents came to the U.S., and their controversial history getting together. We also learn about some of Francie's aunts. And then the rest of the book kind of like flashes back a little bit and takes us through Francie's whole childhood. So let's kind of like focus our attention a little bit on the adults, specifically Katie and Johnny, Francie and Neely's parents, who are such a huge part of this book. Mm. And right away, we find out that Katie, I think at the beginning, is 36. Mm -hmm. And she has these children that are tweens like they're effectively teenagers <laughs> and I of course am here 33 getting ready to have my first child and I you know have been successfully caring for a dog for a couple of years but like that's about it and I just I, there's just so much pressure on these very young adults who seem like they have aged beyond their years they've made decisions that have gone against the advice of their parents their parents are very unhappy that they've married each other Johnny is a whole other story that we can chat about. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about Katie. What did you think about Katie as a character as sort of like, you know, compared to other parents and moms that maybe you've read about in literature? How does Katie stand out? I think the, the first thing that I found most interesting about her is the way that she switched so quickly in that when she was chasing Johnny or when she decided that she was going to chase Johnny, she seemed very juvenile. But the moment they got married and she was pregnant, she changed into this much more mature woman. Bearing in mind that she was, what, like 16 at the time? Yeah, really young. Or was she 16 or, or sixteen or 19? I can't remember how old she was, but yeah. something between those two. And I, I just remember thinking to myself, like, rather than both of them being the ones to sort of step up, she was the one who was like, okay, I have to grow up now. I'm having a baby. And he just had fear kind of wash over him. And I think she... I feel like she spent so much of the book being so tired because she was the only one between the two of them who was the kind of the grown up and who was able to keep things going and instilling in the children the, the need and the understanding that there was a need to work and that this is how life moves forward. And I feel I feel for her because I, I know that in those times that kind of 16, 17 was the age you got married anyway, but I do feel like she had her childhood kind of stolen from her in that way. And I know that it's something that, you know, in theory that she wanted, but I think she'd expected to just sort of be married and be happy for a couple of years and maybe then have a baby. But they're young kids, they're really passionate about each other. They're, I don't think there's any contraception in those days. So you just kind of... Not that they knew of. <laughs> if there was, of. they didn't know how to use it. <laughs> but certainly not. And so, you know, she just, she kind of had that childhood stolen from her. And I think, I guess another one of the reasons that she did want Francie to go to school in the end and both of them to have that so that they could have that education and that childhood that she didn't get to have. I spent a lot of the novel being really upset with her but it was so clear that she loved Neely more than she loved Francie and I know how much Francie wanted to be loved by her but I know that it's something that she couldn't even help and she just didn't she didn't know how to help it and I also I felt sorry for her in that way. I was like you're so mean. Well she wasn't even actively mean to Francie but I felt oh poor Francie and then I thought oh, but poor Katie she doesn't know she doesn't know anything else. She hasn't She hasn't had her own childhood and she's just trying to do the best she can. I mean, so this book was published in 1943, but it takes place at the very beginning of the 20th century. So mm. I do think it's like important to remember, and, and I sometimes forgot this too, like these people, they have nowhere near the resources that we have, even about like parenting. I mean, right now, I wish I had a little bit less information about parenting because like <laughs> Instagram so has my number about what's about to happen to me and is giving me so much unsolicited advice. But, mm. you know, even a few decades ago, there was this growing 
industry around like supporting new parents and giving people resources to better understand their children and to better understand how to build healthy families. And I think that what's hard with Katie is that Katie really does want what's best for her kids. She seems to recognize that her parents were imperfect and her dad in particular was very scary. Her mother really had to protect her children from a potentially abusive father. And so it's not as though Katie is not aware of her shortcomings. Like I, it felt to me like Katie is, is pretty self-aware that she wants to do better for her kids, that she wants them to have an education, and perhaps even that she is not as, as great of a mom to Francie as she is to Neely, but she doesn't have access to like the resources to figure out how to make that happen. And on top of that, she's working so hard that like she doesn't really have time to think about it. So I think in that way, she was such a beautifully nuanced character because like you, I was so frustrated with her for most of the book. I mean, there are a few scenes where the favoritism is so obvious and eventually Francie even starts calling it out, Mm. which was very satisfying as a reader. (laughs) But I think like I sort of softened then because I was like, yeah, but she's being really unfair, but she knows she's being unfair. She just doesn't know how not to be. And it's heartbreaking to think about that because she's young, she's struggling, she's effectively a single parent, and she knows what she doesn't know, and yet she doesn't know how to figure out what she doesn't know. Yeah, exactly. It's that kind of sad catch-22. <laughs> Which is so sad. And to your point about how quickly she sort of had to shift gears after marrying Johnny, who you know was this like really charming, romantic guy, I pulled out this quote, Katie exchanged her tenderness for capability. She gave up her dreams and took over hard realities in their place. Katie had a fierce desire for survival, which made her a fighter. Johnny had a hankering after immortality, which made him a useless dreamer. And that was the great difference between these two who loved each other so well. Mm, That's a great quote you pulled out. (laughs) I mean, there are so many quotes in this book, and I tried to like capture as many as I could. But I was reading a couple of articles about the book, and one of the things that was often reflected upon was like this idea of the balance between pragmatism and idealism or romanticization of things. And Katie is forced to be the pragmatist in the family, whereas Johnny is always the idealist. He's always the romantic. And because of that, unfortunately, it sort of seems like their relationship was doomed from the start, or at least their sort of like grounded familial relationship. They probably could have gone on like making out forever, but like (laughs) it was never going to be successful as a more grounded family unit. Yeah. It's such a shame because I I, I wonder to myself, like if Johnny had AA, what could they have been? Like how could things have turned out? They could have turned out so much more differently. You know, but then I also think about the life experiences, like particularly the life experiences that Francie had having to then go into the city to work and, having those experiences and meeting that guy, a terrible guy. Um, (laughs) We'll get to him later. He's the worst. Oh, oh, goodness. And, you know, those kind of things that make up your formative years and having those experiences that kind of things that force you to grow up. And it's, it's almost better that she had that experience of growing up than she had what Katie had. If she'd fallen in love really, really young, got married, had to have a kid, and then immediately was like, okay, it's my life over. And I have to dedicate myself to, to what happens to the kids. So it's it's funny because I think maybe that's what Betty wanted the readers to feel, that there's this what if, what if this happened, what if this happened, but things happened the way that they were meant to happen and that if they hadn't happened the way they were, those people wouldn't be the way that they were and they wouldn't have had the opportunity probably to go to college because they wouldn't have had the money to, but because of what happened to Johnny and then she meets, McShane comes before, but you know, then they do have the opportunity to do that and their lives are sort of changed forever. It occurs to me as you were talking about what Johnny might have been able to do had he had access to AA, that there's this parallelism between what we were just saying about Katie and Johnny's situation. Because Johnny, who is Francie and Neely's father, is an alcoholic, and he's not pretending not to be. Mm. Just like Katie is not pretending to be a perfect mother. Like Johnny Mm. is pretty open about the fact that he knows he's drinking too much, He doesn't have the vocabulary about addiction being a disease. He thinks it's something that's entirely within his control. So there are a couple of times that he does stop drinking for short periods of time. We actually see a scene where he goes through withdrawal and it's very upsetting. But I, again, like he knows 
he knows that there's something wrong and he knows he wants to do better. He and Francie have this very classic like father-daughter relationship because Katie favors Neely. Francie and Johnny tend to kind of go together all the time as well. It's clear that that Johnny wants to do better for his kids. And I think if he knew that there were other resources, if he knew that he was dealing with a disease and that so much of it wasn't about him just deciding to stop drinking, so much of it was about him getting treatment and help. Mm. If he'd had that treatment and help, things could have been completely different. And Mm. it is always refreshing when I come back to these books that are geared to kids to any degree to see fallible adults. I think it's so important. And because we get so much access to what these grownups are thinking in this story, we know that like, even though they're, you know, I'm sure Francie is looking at her parents and she's like, oh, they're so old. They're so grown up. (laughs) But there are parts of this book where her parents are in their like mid twenties. Yeah. And parenting kids that are like elementary school age, dealing with addiction dealing with financial struggle, they have no idea what they're doing. They're winging it. They're totally <laughs> winging it. It's fascinating to think <laughs> about it that way. There is one other adult that I wanted to to touch on, and that's Aunt Sissy. Oh. Because Aunt Sissy is fascinating to me. Aunt mm. Sissy is one of Katie's several sisters, and she's the one who's most present. There are a few things going on with Aunt Sissy. The first is she is very sexual. And she's very sex positive in a world that really doesn't want her to be. What did you think about the way that Aunt Sissy was portrayed, particularly in terms of her sexuality? Do you know what's so interesting? I didn't feel like the author was trying to make what she did look shameful. Mm. I felt like she was trying to make her look like she was having fun and she was living her life. Right. And she was just kind of like, consequences be damned. I'm going to live my life. And ultimately, she ends up really happy. And I wondered if that was like the author's way of being like, look, live your life the way you want to, because what's going to happen is going to happen, but at least you're going to be, you're going to have stayed true to yourself. And one of my favorite moments is when Aunt Sissy's husband, Steve, because his name is Steve, we find out later on. <laughs> she calls all of them John. Not, not, not John. Sure. Yeah, Steve, finally. Eventually. Yeah. <laughs> when he discovers that she's actually still married to her first husband. <laughs> Or no, to her to her second husband, I think it is, because the first one the first one dies. She finds out he's married, she's still married to her second husband. And uh, the man writes her and is like, Look, I got a divorce anyway. And Aunt Sissy gets Francie to write a note back to him being like, Well, I got a divorce before you. So you took me this and I'm really happy. And I've got this kid and this kid and I'm doing this, this, this. And Francie's like, But this isn't true, and this is and Sissy's like, just write it anyway. I feel like she is the most joyful character of all the characters in the book. And I loved reading about her escapades. I thought they were hilarious. And she brought a real lightness to the book because it's 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 quite a bleak book when you think about it. There are there are pockets of joy, but for the most part it's quite a bleak book. And I think she was just I think at times she was portrayed as being a little bit stupid or a bit of an airhead. I don't know if that was like deliberate, like she's so stupid, this is why she behaves this way. But I think even in the portrayals of her as an airhead, she did kind of get away with things. Like when she pretended to be Francie's mother and went into school, she was like, you must let her sit at the front. I love that she was so family oriented and she really fought for her family. She's fiercely loyal, apart from to her husband's, but she's fiercely loyal. <laughs> she's fiercely loyal. She'll do what needs to be done. You know, she's there when, when she's needed. And I love that about her. I found her, I think she was probably my favorite character because I felt like we saw we saw so much of her and we saw so many different sides. But we saw how resourceful she was when it came to having a baby. <laughs> and and that, was, that whole thing was honestly, it was just, it was ridiculous, but it was fantastic. I, I loved her. I thought she was a fantastic character. I found that when I was reading about Aunt Sissy, those were the moments that I was most reminded of the fact that this is at least semi-autobiographical. Mm. Because you can really, like, feel the affection that Mm. the narrator, that Francie has for Aunt Sissy. And the book was originally written as a memoir, and it was rejected several times, and then the author ultimately submitted it to a contest, and they suggested that she fictionalize it a bit and make some changes and, and remarket it as a novel. So there's there's still a lot in this book that is true of Betty Smith's childhood. And I don't know, when I was reading about Aunt Sissy, like, it was very clear to me that Betty Smith had an aunt, like Aunt Sissy, who brought this, like, joy and magic to her life. And it wasn't because she was rich and came in with all this money and, like, finery. It was because she came in 
with the same struggles as everybody else in Francie's circle and figured out how to make the best of it and figured out how to make life more fun for her niece and nephew. The love that Francie has for her came off the page so clearly. And as I was reading the, the scenes about how Aunt Sissy did ultimately have her first child, <laughs> I was thinking about how, like, if this were written in 2023, and I had to catch myself because I was kind of doing it. I was like, oh, I feel like there would be a conversation here about mental health or mental illness because mm. to sort of try to summarize this very long story about what happens with Aunt Sissy listeners – Aunt Sissy very sadly had had, at that point, I think 10 stillbirths. She'd been married several times. She had no problem getting pregnant. And every time she had a baby, the baby would not live. Mm. And it's heartbreaking. All she wants is to have a child. And she meets a young teenager in the area who is pregnant and does not want to be. And decides that she is kind of going to be like this teenager's keeper and guardian angel for the duration of her pregnancy and hope that this girl will make good on her promise to let sissy raise this baby as her own all that feels very fine true to the time period great whatever things get a little funky because just as the teenager seems as though she's ready to deliver the baby aunt sissy kind of like I, I don't even know what how to describe it. She she gets into bed and she starts like play acting at being <laughs> in labor mm. and does this whole like performance about giving birth. And it's like to her husband who has been living with her presumably for the last 10 months. I think a lot of 2023 readers, and again, I had to catch myself because I was kind of doing it, would come to this book in the situation with fresh eyes and be like, something is wrong here. Mm. whereas to Betty Smith like whatever real you know however real this version of Francie is however true this this version of Francie is to Betty Smith's experience probably was watching this and was like what is going on (laughs) with my aunt like she is so (laughs) wacky and it's just like more of a quirk whereas now it would be like everybody hold the phone what's going on with sissy (laughs) yes so I don't know it's complicated but she she was a fun character to read yeah, she definitely, definitely was. And one of the things I loved that Betty did so well is she told these, she gave voice to every character with these like little stories about them. Mm-hmm. Like even the story about Aunt Evie's husband and the fact that his horse didn't like him mm-hmm. and the horse loved her. And, you know, even the stories, the, the backstories about Katie and Johnny and their family and things like that. I just, I loved that. And I think there's, there was a particular story that she tells uh, about a woman. I can't remember, her name began with a J, but I can't remember what she was. But she was a young woman. She was unmarried and she had a baby and she was walking through the street with her nice pram. And the women of the street were just dis- completely disapproving of her. And so they started throwing stones at her. And then one of the stones hits the baby on the head and the baby starts bleeding. And then they suddenly like retreat into their homes. And I feel like that that was probably a real thing that happened because it feels like such a cool memory even the shame that Francie says she feels afterwards about having not smiled back at this young woman when she smiled at her. And, and in that way, she feels sort of complicit in the hatred that the, women, the other women on the street give to her. I just feel like the cast of characters is so rich and everybody feels so full as a person. There's, no, there's nobody who feels sort of left behind. And I really love that. I think that's such a, particularly with such a large cast of characters, the author does such a good job of making everybody feel like they are real, palpable, 3D people. Yeah, I love a book with this big of a cast of characters. I love a long book. This is how I like to write. And I was I was sort of, you know, feeling sorry for myself as I was reading this book because I just had to cut at my agent's request 35,000 words from my manuscript because oh, this no. is how I like to write. I want to write. <laughs> I want everybody to know every backstory of every character, of every person they've ever met, of every person they've ever walked <laughs> by on the street. And I just don't think that there's as much space for that in publishing in 2023, particularly if like you're a first time author, there's not as much patience for that. They did not ask Betty Smith to kill a single darling. They were like, you just write the whole thing. So I agree with you. It was a lot of fun to sort of travel down all of those little alleyways and learn more about each character. I think we should turn our attention to Francie because she is, of course, our eyes and ears through this story. There are a lot of things we could talk about with her, um, and I'm anxious to hear kind of what you found most compelling. But I did want to say one thing to get us started, which is that Francie does this thing throughout the whole book 
no matter what she is facing. And she is, of course, like she is the tree that grows in Brooklyn. That's the, the, the core metaphor here is that Francie is like this tree in the backyard of her apartment building in Brooklyn that just continues to thrive in the middle of the city, no matter the conditions. That's Francie. And she does this thing that I think we kind of joke about a lot in 2023, which is she romanticizes her life, Mm. which is such like a TikTok-ism, I think, of like, how do you (laughs) romanticize your life? But Francie does, like whether it's when she's a really little girl and she is going to the five and dime store and she has a nickel and that makes her feel powerful and she has this whole routine about getting candy or whether it's that she is 16 and commuting to work, like she finds a way to romanticize everything and, and she romanticizes things that most people would have a really hard time finding even a small glimmer of joy in. So that to me was the thing that felt most kind of contemporary to me about her. What did you think of her? Where do you want to start in terms of like the many, many kind of subplots that we could get into <laughs> about her over the course of these like 500 plus pages? I know. I thought she was so sweet. Yeah. I thought she was just a really lovely, like pure hearted person. And maybe that's because Betty Wright was trying to tell us how pure hearted she was. Um, <laughs> but I, I just, I thought she was so like, my only gripe with her is that I wish she'd stood up for herself a bit more, particularly when it came to her teacher. And I hated her teacher, Miss Gardner, so much. <laughs> at first, because at first she was, for, for context for listeners, this teacher at first is very um, supportive of Francie's writing when she's writing about sort of very light, airy, fairy things. And then when she starts to write about the realities of life, like her father's alcoholism and things like that, then the teacher's like, oh, this stuff is ugly and it's not truth and it's not beautiful, therefore she shouldn't write about it. And Francie's like, huh? Francie's like, come live at my house, please. <laughs> literally, she's like, this is, she's kind of like, well, this is kind of my reality. And ultimately, Francie doesn't turn any, Francie wants to write a play for the end of the end of her time of school and the teacher doesn't like her play because her play's too dark and she tells her that she should try and write on this other girl's play and she doesn't want to and then she also doesn't turn in a final project and so the teacher technically would have failed her but she gives her I think she gives her a C when English was her best subject and this teacher is so sure of herself this whole time like oh I'm correct and I'm this and I just remember I, I the one thing I love though even though I wish that Francie had stood up for herself a bit more is that at the end she's like I just feel sorry for her because she believes the lie that she's telling me that what I'm saying is ugly and it's not beautiful and, and therefore it's not truth. And I, I did find that quite interesting, but I think, yeah, I just, I love Francie and I kind of, in, in those stories, I think I would probably be irritated by her naivete, but I thought it was so lovely and endearing the way she loved her father. I, I knew he was going to die because I, I hope we're allowed to give spoilers. Yeah. Spoilers are okay. Okay. fine. <laughs> yeah. I'm suddenly like, uh, <laughs> I had a feeling he was going to die. I think, the author foreshadows it quite early on, to be fair. Yeah, I think so You're too. You're pretty sure, like, yeah, that he's going to die. So I was kind of waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. Even that moment when he was going through that withdrawal and Sissy came, I thought that he was just going to die lying next to her. And I was like, oh gosh, this is going to be such a terrible way to go. Although I think the way he went was even sadder, sort of getting pneumonia and then not even being able to speak. Yeah. But that love that Francie had for her father and the fact that they would always like, complete this song and that he... That he took her to that school and oh my goodness, I, I loved her. I like she just had such a love for everybody and she didn't immediately hate anybody. She her first instinct was always love. And I found that really interesting considering the time that she was living in and how judgmental people were. Even that incident with the woman with the pram and her baby, like people were so instinctively kind of evil almost in that time and like really judgmental. But despite all of that. It's like you said, she was, she is that tree growing in Brooklyn. She is, she grows and she has that positivity despite everything going on around her, despite all the circumstances. Yeah, I just wanted the best for her. And I, I, I really hope that she did go on to college and achieve everything she wanted to achieve and that she got back writing again. Cause I was so sad when she burned all her manuscripts. That made me so upset. I loved her. I was, I was really rooting for her. And the moment when she, like when you said she, she turned, finally confronts her mom, like, I know you love Nearly more than me. And her mom is like, uh, uh. <laughs> I mean, although to be fair, Katie doesn't even deny it. She just, well, she kind of does, but not really with as much heart as you would think. Because she's kind of like, okay, well, I guess she knows now. But she's like, yeah, perhaps, you're right. Can't... You caught me. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Like, whoops. <laughs> but even then, like, Francie immediately is like, oh, I feel bad. I'm sorry, mom. Like, I know that you're just this, this, this. And she, she's like a dream child. She honestly is like a dream child. And she sacrifices 
the time when she wants to go to school so that she can work because she knows that it's going to be enough more money for everybody. She's always thinking of everybody else. And even the moments when she wants to hug her brother, she's like, well, I know if I hug him, he's going to find it like horrible and disgusting. So I'll just leave him alone. She is, she's just so wonderful. I loved her. I loved her so much. And I even loved her when she made up that lie about her name being Mary so she could get the doll. I thought that was hilarious. (laughs) Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, she lies to get a doll at like a charity kind of event, which her mother is horrified about because her mom doesn't want to accept any charity. But but Francie wants the doll so badly and so badly so badly and she's like it's fine I will I will pretend that my name is Mary and I will own the fact that I'm poor if it means that I can have this doll (laughs) I loved her I loved her love of learning I think that many listeners of this podcast who are bookworms probably relate to Francie so deeply because from really the very beginning we discover that her happy place is the library she just lives to go to the library her routine of reading one page of Shakespeare and one page of the Bible every night. Like she has been taught to read a page of Shakespeare and a page of the Bible every night as like her key to success. And she lives for that. And when she gets to go to this slightly better school because her father supports her in doing so, that's a huge deal. She cannot wait to go to school because for the first hundred pages or so, she's too young And even when she gets bullied before she even starts, she can't wait to go. Like that doesn't turn her off from going to school. She's not in it for the friends. She just wants to go and learn and she understands the value of an education. She just can't wait. She's eager. She's earnest. And I I echo what you said about her sort of writing journey. There were a lot of sort of Joe March-esque parallels to her where like in Little Women there's so many moments where Joe, you know, wants to write these kind of wholesome family stories that do explore some of the difficulties of of just being in America at this time in history. And then the editor like wants these salacious, like sort of gossipy stories instead. And <laughs> I think just to watch her sort of creative torment at different times so young was interesting. I don't know. I loved her. I loved her too. And the conversation that that I mentioned earlier and that you brought us back to it it again it all circles around school like so much of the conflict in Francie's life is about school and it made me wish that I could talk to my grandmother about this book because I'm sure she read it and my grandmother fought so hard to be allowed to go to school my grandmother was like the smartest person I have ever met and my great grandfather was horrible and just did not believe in women being educated period and my grandmother used to tell me the story about how vividly she remembers like sitting on the steps of her house like screaming at her at her father who was scary because she'd gotten a scholarship and she was like you don't have to pay anything but you just like please let me go and I just I wish that I could have talked to her about this book because I'm sure she had thoughts about it and Francie's fight is with her mother because her mother has has found herself in this situation where she's a single parent, she's about to have a third baby, and she can only afford to send one of her kids to school. Mm. And her argument is that because Neely is not as naturally interested in learning, he sort of has to go to school if he's going to learn because otherwise he won't ever do it. Like he'll be super content to just work wherever he ends up and it will be fine. But her mom's like, oh, but if if you wait a year, I know that you'll go to school. Like, I don't have to worry about motivating you to get back into it. And Francie basically is like, this is bullshit. Like, why, <laughs> why is this? Not in so many words, because Francie would never. <laughs> she would never. She would never. But like, <laughs> and it is bullshit. Like, that's not fair. I mean, Neely is actively saying, I don't want to go. Like, I would actually much rather work. And the fact that that this is the infrastructure in which they live is really what's bullshit here. Of course, the system is the problem. But I was so frustrated on Francie's behalf because Neely is trying to help her. Neely is saying to the mom, like, no, let her go. This is way better. Yeah. And it was really heartbreaking. And it just made, it made me think about those like memories that my grandmother used to share with me of like her, her brother didn't care nearly as much about school as she did. And yet my great grandfather would be like, oh, no, like he should go. He, he'll be fine. He'll go to college. Mm. And that just must be so frustrating. 
it really also bothered me every time Katie repeated, he's going to be a doctor. He's going to be a surgeon. <laughs> right. This Why? Had no interest. <laughs> He wanted to go on the stock market and wanted to make money. He did not want to be a doctor. Leave the boy alone. <laughs> yeah. He has shown no affinity for the sciences and no interest at in medicine whatsoever. All. Yeah. At all. And I was just like, you need to let go of this. Like, I know you want him to go to school and that's fine, but stop saying he has to be a doctor because that is stressing me out. The more you say it, the less likely it is to happen. Yeah. Go let him make some money because then maybe everybody will be a little bit less stressed out and life will be easier for all of you. Exactly, exactly. We do have to kind of close the loop on that horrible boy that we alluded to earlier, Lee, because <sighs> I can't I can't possibly finish even sort of like an abbreviated summary of a tree grows in Brooklyn without giving him <laughs> what he deserves. Francie has not had any time for romance. You know, she's been working constantly, she's been taking care of her family. And she kind of has this crush on this kid named Ben who she met at school. But Ben is really ambitious and he's going away to college and he, you know, doesn't have time for a relationship. But after she's made up her mind that that's like not an option for her, this other guy shows up named Lee. And Lee initially is just like the friend of a guy that her friend is going on a date with. So so Francie's essentially brought in as like, the wing woman to double date with this other couple so that her friend can go on a date. And her friend is like, don't worry about it. You know, this guy's engaged. I just need, I basically like need you to cover for me. And Francie has this very romantic night with him. I'm pretty chaste, but by Francie's standards, like very romantic. They seem to fall in love. Talk to me about Lee. All right, like, let's just get into it with him. Lee, God. (laughs) Lee was so misleading in so many different ways. He was misleading, number one, in that he seemed like, at first, like this very shy guy who was just, you know, really lonely and just wanted someone to hang out with. Okay, fine. But he was not, as we later find out. Then he was engaged, but everybody from his town is engaged. That was my first red flag. That's what we would call in 2023 a red flag. (laughs) That was my first red flag. I'm engaged, but everybody's engaged. I was like, mm, are you engaged? Is, are you not engaged to you, but you're in, you are engaged to her? Like, is that the reality? So that was my first red flag. And then he was like, oh, I'm leaving. Can we be together? And I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So basically he asks Francie if she'll sleep with him. And she's like, um, I don't think so. And then he's like, oh, I'm so sorry that I asked. He's not sorry that he asked. No. He just wanted to get a bit of tail before he left. That's what he wanted. Right. He's a soldier. He's going off to war. Exactly. And he's like, oh, write to me. I'm going to write you back. I'm going to write you back. So Francie does write him, this poor, lovely girl, who feels bad for saying that she wouldn't sleep with him. And it's actually confusing because she says to her mother, like, oh, should I have slept with him? And her mum is like, well, that could have been a problem. But also, maybe you should have. <laughs> I have to say, this was like my favorite moment of Katie because Katie was like, <laughs> Katie said there are two truths. She's like, the truth as your mother is that it could have ruined your life if you slept with him. But the truth as a woman, like friend to friend, is that I understand why it would have felt like the right thing to do. And I was like, yeah, way to level with your child. I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> it's true. I had to give the it's shout true. out to no. Katie in that moment. Yeah, that was good. That was like maybe her one – well, not her one because she never lied to the kids. But like that was when I felt like she was really – keeping it 100, she was on a level with her. And I, I thought that was really good of her. But I suppose Francie was at the age where she, she kind of needed to know that information. But also it was, it was really good that she didn't sleep with Lee. Yeah, seriously. Um, because then, then Francie, lovely girl, but she, she does write him. And she gets a letter back. She gets a letter back. And that letter is from Lee's wife. <laughs> Not fiance, his wife. <laughs> and at first she's like, oh, maybe this is his mom or his sister-in-law. <laughs> No, uh, uh, nope. his wife and and the first part of the letter, the wife was like, "Oh, thanks for keeping him company." Da 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 da. And I'm like, "This woman has no idea." But also, I would be curious as to why a young woman would be writing my husband. Yeah, like I would be a little bit like, "What's going on here?" And then at the end of the letter, the postscript is like, "I'm sorry that he pretended to be in love with you." And I was like, <laughs> first of all, I think that the wife probably meant it in a nice way. But the way that I read that, the, the first time I read it was like, "Oh yeah, sorry that you believed that. That's so stupid." Like. <laughs> he pretended to be in love with you because just like wow you you believe that you believe that he was in love with you that he, he fell in love with you like that um 
And I felt so bad for Francie and Francie was obviously so angry and upset, but they're like, what was she gonna do? Write back and be like, you tell him to come back right now for more and apologize to me. Like there was nothing she could do, but that was her first love. And that made me so annoyed for her. And I just thought, what a little toad. But you know, I guess on the one, on the one, that's the polite way of putting it. I would have called him something else. But I guess that was a good learning experience for her that, you know, good job that she didn't sleep with him, even though he was clearly desperate for it, because then she would have had that horrible regret or she would have been potentially left pregnant mm -hmm. with this man's child. And then his wife would be like, sorry that he pretended to be in love with you. And then what's she going to do right back and be like, yeah, well, while he pretended to be in love with me, I got pregnant. You know, that could have been a whole other situation. Right. So she learned from it, but I was, I was disappointed. I thought that Benjamin Franklin, hilarious name, um, was going to be the first when I read that. I was like, Betty, are you being serious? <laughs> but um, I thought that maybe Benjamin was going to be her first love and they were going to become this power couple and, you know, he was going to run for office and she was going to be his smart writer wife or something. But um, alas, Lee, Lee got in the way. I think that is a, a warning. We should all be aware of Lee's people who talk real sweet and then have nothing behind the ears, nothing between the ears. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm, I was team Ben from the minute we met him. I think that they will probably end up together. I think they still could be a power couple. It is a happy ending because, because Francie does get to go to not only to college, but she's going away to college. She's going to University of Michigan, which is super cool. She's so excited. Her mom is marrying this guy named Sergeant McShane who has money. But, you know, to your point, Ari, it's like kind of frustrating because it's, it's like, what was any of this for? Like, they've been yeah. busting their butts this whole time. And now <laughs> McShane is like, it's fine. Like, you will be comfortable for the rest of your lives. I love the moment <laughs> when Neely and Francie looked at each other and they were kind of joking about how their little sister was like, oh, well, she she's going to have an easy life compared to us. The lap of luxury. But they, I think they're kind of happy that they had some of those struggles because they're, they have all of these, like, rich memories for it. But everybody kind of, like, ends in this reflective place and it's – because the book is so long, you know, Betty Smith has room to tie up all of those loose ends, mm -hmm. which is very satisfying as a reader. I know you didn't read this book when you were a kid, so we can't compare one reading experience to the other. But I'm kind of curious overall, how does A Tree Grows in Brooklyn kind of compare to books that you were reading at the time when you maybe would have read this? Like, do you think you would have appreciated it as much then as you do now? Um, do you wish that you had read it? What do you think? I read quite short books when I was younger. My parents used to take my sister and I to the library every week and be like, pick a book, read it, report on what happens in the book. I would pick the shortest book, A, because I knew that that way, if I lied about it, I could probably get away with what I would say <laughs> was in there, which I think I did probably a lot. My sister was one who loved reading back then, not me. Yes, I, I think I probably, I was picking things that were a lot easier and I was reading a lot of I don't know if she was as popular in the US as she is here, but Jacqueline Wilson. Yeah, so I read a lot of her when I was younger, which actually is hilarious because now people are finding out that the themes in her books are actually way more serious than we've realized yeah. when we were children. Mm -hmm. So actually, when I think about it, maybe I would have read it and been like, oh, that's such a sad story. I like all these things happening. But I might have just really enjoyed it and thought, thought it was really entertaining and not have realized the depths and the layers behind everything that Betty was saying in the same way that we didn't realize what Jacqueline Wilson was necessarily saying until someone was reading it and being like, you know that this is about this and these are all these really dark themes. Right. I think I probably would have been like, wow, this is like 15 stories in one book. I'm good after the first seven stories. Back when I was younger anyway, because my attention was not like, I wasn't I wasn't there for the long haul with, with really big books. So I think I would have gotten to a certain point and be like, cool, I'm just going to assume it ends really happily and end it here. That's probably what I would have done when I was younger. Yeah. What about you? I think I probably would have like pretended to get it and I would not have gotten it. Like I'm, you know, Little Women is like one of my favorite. It is my favorite classic probably, although it's riddled with its own issues. And the first time I read Little Women, I pretended to be like, forever changed by it and like so impacted um when in fact I think I just you know was really taken with Joe as a little girl who loved to read and write and I think I probably would have had a similar experience where I would have been very taken by Francie and I would have related to her and I would have seen myself in her and I would have been like this book changed my life but I wouldn't have understood so much of it and so in some ways I'm glad that I didn't read it until now I would be remiss and I'll just mention this briefly if I didn't mention the fact that like Little Women this book is certainly not free of its own issues. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about various ethnicities and religions. 
a lot of invocation of stereotypes and things that made me uncomfortable. Lots of anti-Semitism. Yeah, a lot. A lot of anti-Semitism. And then I was obviously thinking about when it was published. Yeah. I was thinking to myself, like, did no one think to say, hey, Betty, you should talk to someone about the problem that you've got because... Yeah. <laughs> especially given the times, I was really shocked by that. It was just, it was like constant as well. I was really, yeah, really confused. And very offhand too, like very sort of throwaway comments throughout the whole yeah. book. It wasn't just one scene. So like any book that was written many, many, many years ago, we of course have to acknowledge the frame from which it's written, but we can also say like there are a lot of things in this book today that make readers uncomfortable as they should. So I wanted to make sure we mentioned that. I'm so glad that you chose this book, or I'm so glad that I finally got to read it. I, like I said, I'm kind of glad that I read it now instead of when I was a kid because I think I appreciated it much more. Yeah. It also would have taken me like months to read it when I was a kid. So um, I actually got to enjoy it this time within a reasonable sort of period. <laughs> and it was a really special way to end the year and to kind of put the show on pause while I go on my little leave. But other than A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, although I'm sure this has taken up a lot of your attention. Have you been reading anything else that you might recommend to our listeners? Yes. So, I mean, I've read this a few months ago now, um, but there's two books that really stood out to me this year that I read. One, I think a lot of people have read already, Trust by Hernan Diaz. I was absolutely blown away by that book. Um, I loved it so much. And I have just been recommending it to everybody and anybody that I can find. I just think it's incredible. And I, I really, really loved it. And then also a book that I reread for the second time um, is Women by Chloe Caldwell, which I suppose some people would call a novella, but I just think it's an incredible exploration of, I don't know if, you, if it's, it is necessarily first love, but it's, it's just such an incredible book. And it talks about almost like the obsession that you can get when you're in a relationship so beautifully. And I think that she's amazing. I think she has a, another novel coming out maybe next year or year after, but I am like laser focused on whatever she has coming. Um, because I think that she's just incredible. And I, I love, love her writing. Great. Well, I will include links to both of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode. And thank you for the reminder about trust because I had it and then I lent it to my mom and I haven't gotten it back yet and I need to because I want to read it. So thank you for that reminder. <laughs> You're welcome. But speaking of books to recommend, as I mentioned, I was so quick to recommend your book to everybody. I'm pretty sure I included it in like every blog post I did. I shared about it on social media. I'm such a fan. But I would much rather listeners hear from you about the three of us. So can you tell them a little bit more about the book and what they can look forward to when they pick it up? Oh, well, they can look forward to that's a good That's a good um, angle for it. Uh, so The Three of Us is a very short book. So if you love short books, it's for you. And it tells the story of a wife, her husband, and her best friend set over the course of one day. And the husband and the best friend despise each other, like truly despise the very breath of the other person. And you get the wife's perspective, the husband's perspective, and then the best friend's perspective. And they're drinking a lot of wine over the course of this afternoon that they are spending together and all sorts of feelings are bubbling to the surface that have been brewing for a long time. What you can expect is uh, unreliable narrators, three very unreliable narrators, very cutting insults, but a very entertaining ride. You probably might, if you are someone who does not like awkward moments, you'll probably feel very uncomfortable as you read the book. Yeah. <laughs> but in an entertaining way, in an entertaining way. And also I think what, what people have said, because I'll say what people have said rather than necessarily what I, I want people to get from it, because I love hearing what people get from it themselves, is they found that they, they loved some of the observations that I made about marriage. And I'm not married, I've never been married. But I am definitely an observer of people. So I'm glad that people who are married picked up some things in there and were like, oh my gosh, this is definitely exactly what marriage is. And I love that. So um, even if you're not married, just like in relationships and also friendships and how they can be really healthy, but they can be toxic at the same time. All those different themes sort of, bundled together in there yeah and also how friendships can change like I thought that that was something that was really interesting yeah being in my 30s like I feel like you know friendships evolve so much as people's lives take different directions and I thought that was interesting the, the other thing that I loved about it was like I couldn't tell whose side I was on like I thought that that was one of my favorite things and you were so skillful at the way that you develop these characters nobody was purely good and nobody was purely bad like I agreed with everybody a little bit and I disagreed with everybody a little bit and at the end of the book I was like I don't know <laughs> yeah. 
I don't, I don't, I don't know. I probably have to read it again to decide how I feel. So everybody, especially if you're traveling, if you have like some downtime over this holiday season, I know that you have a morning or an afternoon that you're going to be cuddling up with a book. And I'm telling you, the three of us, you will finish in a sitting in the best possible way and you're going to love it. And once you read it and love it, you have to tell me and um, make sure that you show Ori a little bit of love too, because it's a really cool book and I can't wait to read what you do next. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm, I could have talked to you about the book for hours. There's so much to talk about. So thank you for having me. Of course. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.